Belonging for purpose is hardwired into the fabric of our souls. But why are we here? And what is life about anyway? I'm Brent Siddle, and this is the God Story Podcast. Today, our guest, my very special guest on the show, is Dominic Doan, a founder of Pursuing Faith and author of When Faith Fails. Dominic has a master's in theology from Oxford and has served as a pastor in Portland, Oregon, North Carolina, and Hawaii. He's taught English for companies in Europe, lectured in theology and history at various colleges, and has worked as a radio DJ. I'm very glad to hear that he worked as a radio DJ. I'm sure it was one of the more colorful parts of his life. Anyway, we'll ask him about that at the end. (laughs) It was, yes. He's also been a missionary in Vanuatu and Mexico. And we're talking to him today because he's got a new book out from Thomas Nelson in the States called Your Longing Has a Name, Come Alive to the Story You Were Made For. And Dominic joins me now. Hi, Dominic. Welcome to the show. Hello. It's good to meet you. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's an honor to for us to have you on the show. Now, what's the story that we are made for? Mm, brilliant question. So in, in the book, I talk about how our soul has longings. You know, David spoke of this in the book of Psalms, chapter 63. He says, my soul longs for you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And we live in this interesting moment where people are beginning to recognize that there are deeper longings that no amount of materialism or secularism can fill. Uh, One author, he spoke of the cracks in secularism that inevitably emerge. And I think we're living in such a moment where, well, the New York Times, just a couple months ago, they put out an article. And in the article, they described this cultural moment in which we live as languishing. And it's an interesting word, um, the etymology of which goes back to a French expression, which means to be faint. Uh, It goes even further back to the Latin word languere, which is related to being lovesick. And I found that was an interesting use of words because in one sense, we we languish, we're we're struggling through the post-pandemic now or the tail end of the pandemic, hopefully. We're seeing conflict across the globe and Ukraine right now where many of us have lost, lost loved ones uh, over the pandemic. Uh, in our family, we lost uh, several. And many, many people right now are wrestling with loneliness, anxiety, depression. So there is that sense of languish, as the New York Times aptly put. But even deeper than that, I think the languish is pointing to a deeper longing. And that longing is ultimately to understand the heart of God, to connect with our creator, to know God and be known by God. So the story we were made for is precisely that. Uh, Our culture, if you were to ask, what is the story we were were made for, would answer by saying, well, you need a bigger house or a faster car, you know, a higher paying paycheck. But God's story is, is different, that we can experience the flourishing of God in the midst of heartache, pain, and suffering, that God's presence is there. And so it's understanding and identifying our own longings, but then also the purpose for which God made us. You write, uh, you have a fascinating expression in, in the book, which I loved. You write, I think, that the magic of our world has been ruined. Now, mm. what did you mean by that? How has, our, how has the magic of our world been ruined? Yeah, so again, I, I think that would uh, refer to what we've seen over the last few years. And that came out of an analogy that I began the book with in chapter one uh, of David Hajdu, who was a, a columnist. He's doing some research on 
a New York City jazz nightclub a number of years ago. And as he's sitting there in this nightclub, the band launches into this song and suddenly this trumpeteer with an Italian cut gray suit shows up on the stage and begins to play his trumpet. And David Hajdu who's doing research for this New York City nightclub. He couldn't believe his eyes because it was the world famous Wynton Marsalis, uh, probably the world's most renowned jazz musician. And he happened to be playing at this relatively small nightclub. No one knew that he was going to be there. And so he's listening along with the crowd as uh, Dave Winston Marsalis is playing so masterfully, so beautifully, so evocatively. And at one point, really at the climax of the song, the, the song was a 1930s ballad called I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. And right at the climax of the song is Winston Marsalis is playing his trumpet someone's cell phone interrupted the whole show. And it was this really annoying, repetitive jingle. And David Hajdu, he wrote down in his notebook, magic ruined, <laughs> because the magic of the night in, in his view had been lost. And so I started the book that way to really provide an, an illustration of the sentiment that many people are feeling right now. As I mentioned, the New York Times call, calling this moment languishing. Uh, and, and then just some of the stats back it up. And I'm sure it's reflected in some way in New Zealand. But right now uh, here in the States, 75% of Americans say they're overwhelmed by stress. 72% say they're exhausted. 67% uh, say they struggle with loneliness. And about half say that they're hopeless. So in many ways, we, we look at our world, we look at our emotional state and yeah, we, the magic is ruined. And yet I make the point in that same chapter, how the master musician, Wynton Marsalis was able to redeem that moment. And he actually began to play note for note, the song of that cell phone jingle and then masterfully wove it back into the same song, that 1930s ballad. And I make the point that, that God is the master storyteller. And even though we may look at our life and think the magic is ruined relationally, emotionally, spiritually, God has a way of weaving things together for his purpose. Mm, that's the mastery of jazz improvisation. Take a cell phone tone mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> improvise it into what you're, what you're doing on your instrument. How have, you, how have you battled with your own soul fatigue, David? Mm. Yeah, so again, in, in the opening chapters, I kind of open up my heart and, and share some of our story and what we faced over the last few years. And we're not alone. Many, many people have gone through similar struggles. And, uh, you know, this is part of the writing process. I, I think that when one writes, it's good to say, this is how it's intersecting with my own life. This is how these words have shaped me. And uh, I think it was Ernest Hemingway, actually, who said, uh, writing is easy. You just sit down at a typewriter and bleed. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it, it, it felt that way a little bit in, in this writing process, sitting down at the, the MacBook and just kind of bleeding a little bit. Um, and, and I think that's a healthy process. It's challenging, too. And, and part of that was sharing, hey, here's some of the things we've navigated as I mentioned earlier, um, losing a few family members the last few years. And again, many people globally are in that same space, uh, helping navigate a church through that difficult time and walking with individuals through their own grief and loss, 
my wife uh, almost dying, and I share that story as well. And so there's just a number of things that happened. Again, not unique to my own story, but I wanted to share some of the things that I had experienced, the soul fatigue that came as a result of those trying, difficult times, and then what it looks like to flourish again, what it looks like for our soul to heal. As David said in Psalm 23, he said, Lord, you restore my soul. And that is what this book is a quest to discover. Mm. What does that look like? How do we find a soul that's restored? How do we go about this process of restoring our souls for those of us who are fatigued and exhausted by things and events? Mm. I think it's really good to understand, first of all, what is the soul? What are we talking about when we reference the soul? Because it is somewhat of a nebulous term, right? Uh, We use the word in so many different contexts and ways. Uh, We may say that an individual, well, they're my soulmate, or referencing music again, I I like jazz or soul, Uh, or in in football, we might say he's the, or rugby in your case, we might say he's the soul of the team. So we use this term in in so many different contexts, but in scripture, uh, the word soul is far deeper, I think, than how culture has flattened it. Uh, It's this old Hebrew word, uh, nefesh, and nefesh, it, it can be soul, self, person, desire, appetite, emotion, passion. It's this beautiful, all-encompassing word that describes the entire fabric of the self. Uh, One author said that the soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates and integrates and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. That was uh, Dallas Willard who said that. And so we need to understand when we're talking about soul, we're talking about the deepest part of us that longs for the presence of God. How can our soul, when our souls are fatigued, when we feel like we're gasping for air, how can our souls begin to be flourishing again? It's through, well, first of all, chapter four, I talk about this. It's connection with God. It's intimacy with God. It's spending time with God. In fact, we talk about Psalm 23 in that same passage where he says, he restores my soul. In in the original language, in the Hebrew it, it, it literally says, he returns my breath to me. And I love that because that's what spending time with God does. Just like Adam, when he came to exist, it says in Genesis, God breathed on him and he became a living nefesh, a living soul. So through the breath of God, the presence of God, intimacy with God, it's there in that place, being still and knowing that he is God that our soul can begin to come alive again. I've discovered in my own life, in those seasons where maybe I'm not seeking the Lord as I ought to be, or spending time in his word, uh, that my soul begins to gasp and pant and long for his presence, right? Psalm 63 again. You write in the book, uh, you spend quite a a bit of time in the book, talking about the seven virtues in Mm -hmm. 2 Peter. what, What can the apostle Peter teach us about soul flourishing? Mm. Oh, I love that question because, you know, every, everyone needs a guide. Everyone needs a mentor. Everyone needs someone who can help really illustrate for them how we can grow, how our souls can be formed, what it looks like to, to follow after Jesus. And Peter's interesting because he models for us not only what a, a flourishing, thriving soul can look like, but also what a burned out, exhausted soul looks like. And 
in one of the chapters, I, I recount his story. And Peter, as you know, was so gritty and raw and had a foot-shaped mouth and was constantly doing things that he shouldn't be doing, sleeping when he should have been praying, uh, sinking when he should have been walking, right? Uh, he was just constantly messing up. And then finally, he ended up standing at an enemy's fire and denying that he knew Jesus. And Jesus, of course, looked at him. I talk about how that word look is actually a word of compassion. It's a word of, of grace. And Peter then wept bitterly, went back to his old life of fishing. Jesus then tracked him down and invited him to breakfast. And there at breakfast, Jesus, it says, had made a coal, a fire of coals. It's interesting. It's the same language that is used when Peter denied Christ. Mm. So it's almost like Jesus is recreating the, the same scenario, only this time to redeem it, to, to give him a fresh start. Peter, feed my sheep. And then Peter went on to do precisely that. In the book of Acts, he's planting churches. He's one of the apostles. He's sharing the word of God. One day, 3,000 people get saved in one of his sermons. God uses them in remarkable ways. And what we see in Peter's life is this trajectory from burnout to flourishing. It doesn't mean his life got easier. And this is where understanding the word flourishing is so important. His life didn't get easier necessarily, but his soul began to thrive. He began to experience what Jesus had promised, that if we believe in him, out of our innermost being will gush forth torrents of living water. And so as an old man, while he was languishing in a prison cell uh, and his soul was alive, he takes pen to scroll and he writes those beautiful words that really this book uh, revolves around where Peter encourages us to add to our faith and to confirm our calling and election. We can't deal with all the seven virtues in this podcast. We'd be talking for about three hours or probably longer, but <laughs> can we just deal with a, a couple of them? Maybe, maybe two or three if we have time. Why does, he be, why does Peter begin with goodness or virtue? Mm -hmm. uh, we're, yes. talking about two, we're talking about 2 Peter 1 verse 5 here. Goodness that's or, correct. Goodness or virtue, which is arete, is it in the original Greek? Arete. That, that's correct. Excellent. Yes, arete. Like excellence, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yes. Excellence, yeah. So in, in that chapter, I talk about the Greek understanding of arete versus the biblical understanding of arete. And as you mentioned, arete uh, to the ancient Greek world meant, meant excellence. Uh, a house, for example, was considered arete if it was comfortable and well-designed. Uh, uh, food was considered arete if the taste and texture and aroma was mouth-watering. Um, but what's interesting is, is the way they used arete, and it was primarily the philosophers, is that those with arete were assumed to be the privileged of society. If you're smart, disciplined, good-looking, wealthy, well-educated, then it's, you have arete. What we see in scripture, however, is that when they use the word arete, goodness, virtue, it's not something that comes to us through our own striving or our own social status, but rather it's something that is born out of relationship with God. And so in that chapter, I talk about goodness or virtue, as you mentioned, um, who is the source of our goodness? So it's not us. It's not our positions. It's not our education. It's not how much money we have. It's who God is and knowing him, being connected to him. And that, of course, is through prayer. So I believe that as Peter is laying out for us this roadmap of a flourishing life, and we touched on this, 
is that really it's intimacy, it's closeness, it's connection to the source of goodness that is the foundation of all human flourishing. What's Peter's understanding of, is it, is it pronounced gnosis? I never know how to pronounce this word, gnosis, gnosis, or knowledge. Mm-hmm. What's his understanding yeah. of knowledge there in, in uh, 2 Peter 1.5? Yeah, that's, that's a really, really good question. Um, so th- there's so many different forms of knowing. When we talk about knowing, there's the knowing that is simply intellectually based, uh, that we know about something. Uh, Of course, Gnosticism uh, was a whole school of thought in the ancient world, and it had to do with these mystery religions. Peter, of course, isn't talking about that. He's talking about the kind of knowing that actually will lead you to a changed life, that will interact with your physicality. Uh, The ancient Gnostics, they would bifurcate the spiritual versus physical. Uh, And and they really emphasize that the true virtue is found in the unseen. And that led, of course, to asceticism on one hand, or hedonism on the other hand, because if the physical body really doesn't matter, ultimately, we can either hurt it or we can just bring pleasure to it. But in the Bible, they, they had a very elevated view of not only our spiritual self, but also our physical self. It's why the Apostle Paul He says, offer your physical bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your act of worship. So when Peter talks about knowledge, he's coming at it from this biblical worldview that knowing God isn't just some spiritual, mystical experience. It's also something that's going to deeply change and resonate with our lives here on earth and now. And so I talk about the knowledge that can come to us through knowing his word, but then also the knowledge uh, that comes to us about ourselves. And, and this is where I, you know, I talk about the concept of living without walls later on in the book and uh, how if we desire our souls to flourish, we need to understand what's happening in the fabric of our souls and the deep recesses of our souls. And that comes through prayer, comes through God's word, it comes through conviction, comes through mentorship, <laughs> comes through the advice of others, uh, comes through humility comes through the willingness to confront that which is broken in us. We'll come on to the last of the virtues, um, because we, we won't have time to deal with all seven, unfortunately. But agape love is, is, where mm. he, is where he ends. Now, why was agape considered the purest form of love mm. in the ancient world? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting question, because in our language, we use the word love as a, <laughs> a term to describe so many different things. I, I love my wife, Elisa. Uh, I also love French fries, Um, but it's a different, it's obviously different, hopefully, or otherwise we have problems in our marriage. But in the ancient world, they didn't have that problem because they took this concept of love and they gave it different meanings through different words. Um, And there's actually seven different words in the ancient world. And I walk through them in the book. There's storge, which is affection. There's philea, which means brotherly love, eros, which is erotic love, ludus, which is kind of a flirtation, uh, pragma is where we get a word pragmatic, uh, philentia is more of a self-love, and then agape, of course, was considered back then, the, the, the kind of love that's not necessarily dependent on our emotions or how it's reciprocated from others. Uh, agape is love without manipulation. It's that intentionality, choosing to break our lives open for the sake of others. And when Peter uses the word love, and many authors of of the New Testament use the same word to describe 
God's love toward us, that the way he loves us is the purest, the deepest, the, the most authentic, sacrificial form of love. And so in that chapter, I talk about, okay, how, how can we love others? Because unlike modern contemporary definitions of flourishing, flourishing isn't about what we get, but true flourishing is what we give. It's choosing to love. It's getting our eyes off of ourselves, pouring ourselves out, as Paul said, as, as a drink offering to others. And in that process, there's thriving, there's beauty, there's the presence of God to be found. Does our culture misunderstand love? <laughs> I, well, I, you know, that's a, in many ways, yes. Um, there's deep interest in love, obviously. I, I mentioned, I think, in that chapter how one of the top Google searches over the last few years is, what is love? And culturally, we tend to define love, I, I think in popular culture, certainly through media, uh, as infatuation or as tolerance. I, I think one of the most pernicious lies uh, of mainstream culture is that if you, quote unquote, love someone, you have to blindly acquiesce to every choice they make, or if you disagree with their lifestyle, that you must therefore hate them. <laughs> but that's all agape. That's a false choice, actually. You don't have to compromise your beliefs to be loving. A love doesn't merely tolerate people. It fights for people. It, it speaks up when people go down destructive paths and walks with them patiently in pursuit of their healing. So love isn't blind. It, it sees imperfections and flaws, but then intentionally works towards healing. So there's that definition of love. And then of course, we could talk about secularism and naturalism that reduce love to a, a chemical chain of events, you know, just purely biological with no ultimate meaning. But love in scripture is so much deeper than just physicality and neurons bumping up against each other. Uh, it, it, it's something that shapes us, that draws us close to the heart of God, who is love. But how then can we practice agape love? Mm. Well, I, I, I do believe as a follower of Jesus that the, the more we follow him and pursue him, the more we learn what love looks like. And we, we see how Jesus loved. Uh, you know, the other day I was thinking about that story where Jesus was with his disciples and it just... And hours before his betrayal and crucifixion. And Jesus took bread and he broke it. He took a cup and he passed it around. They had communion. And then he took a basin of water. And one by one, he began to wash his disciples' feet. And it's interesting because when he came to Peter, he's like, not me. Right? Um, and then Jesus said, well, if that, you don't let me wash my feet, right? There's, there's more we need to talk about. And Peter's like, okay, wash all of me then. And, and Jesus, when he was done washing their feet, he says, I've done this as an example for you. Even as I have washed your feet, I want you to wash the feet of others. Now, in our culture, foot washing isn't really commonly practiced. However, we do know in that culture, it was one of the most uh, humble acts. It was the act done by servants. It was an act done to welcome someone into, their, into your home. Um, and it was really the lowest of the low that would do that as an act of generosity and grace and love. And so for us, our, our calling is to love a world that is hurting, a world that is languishing. The, the feet are dirty, right? And each of us can live this out in different ways. It could be as simple as 
prayer for a neighbor. It could be spending time with a coworker, just listening to their story and sharing the heart of the gospel. It could be an act of generosity. As we get close to the heart of God, he shows us how we can break our heart open for the sake of the world and for the healing of the world. Yes, wonderful subject. Just before we, we're almost out of time, but just before we go, um, I've got to ask you on a much lighter note about your time in radio or television, was it? You were a DJ. Yes. I, I can't resist asking you that question. Right. Yes. So uh, this was when I was finished with high school. So in, in, in America, I was around 18 years old. And it was one of my first jobs. I got to work for a, a radio station in Southern Oregon and uh, <laughs> play music and then do some commentary in between songs and interview people. It was, it was a very, as you mentioned earlier, colorful experience. Mm. Um, but in, in some ways, I'm, I'm very thankful for it because now, it, it, you know, I'm used to standing behind a microphone. Yep. <laughs> everything now on Zoom and, yep. you know, everything that's happened over the last couple of years, I think we've all become DJs in some sense. <laughs> I think you're right. And it's, I always maintain radio is a great discipline for any public speaking yes. role or media role or, or just generally for life. And you get yeah. to meet some really yeah. colorful and interesting characters as well. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like this, like this conversation. No. <laughs> okay. uh, Dominic Doan, thank you so much for your time and uh, his book latest book from Thomas Nelson in the States, which is a beautiful read and you will benefit from it. I thoroughly loved it. I enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it. And it's one of those books that you'll come back to. So grab hold of a copy and and uh, give it your time because it's well worth it. The book is Your Longing Has a Name. Come alive to the story you were made for. And Dominic, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. Absolutely. It was so good to chat with you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.